This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here on my own to introduce a little bit of a different format for this week's episode. First, in a moment, you're going to hear our colleague Chris Murphy of the Still Watching podcast and frequent guest on our show in a conversation with Stacey L. Smith. She's a professor and the founder of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. They have a new study out this week where they're examining the top grossing movies in Hollywood from 2007 to 2022 and finding how changes in inclusivity are occurring over that time. And this year, there are there's some notable progress, and there's some areas where a whole lot of progress is still yet to be made. So Chris will talk to Stacey about where we can still see Hollywood moving forward there. And then after that, you're going to hear our latest installment of the Little Gold Men Book Club. We're talking about The Zone of Interest by Martin Amos and the Jonathan Glazer film adapted from it that premiered at Cannes. Um, Richard Lawson, Rebecca Ford are there to talk about it alongside me and Hilary Busis returning for our book club yet again. Uh, so let's hear all of that, and I will hand it over to Chris. Dr. Stacy Smith, it's so great to talk to you about the Annenberg Inclusion Study. So I think some of our listeners might not know exactly what that study is. So can you sort of just describe um, your work and the study? Sure, Chris. Uh, each year, uh, we put out a report on the 100 uh, top box office films domestically. Um, and we've been looking at these films from 2007 all the way through uh, our most recent year, which is 2022, and we evaluate on-screen gender, race, ethnicity, LGBTQ+, and people with disabilities, as well as gender and race, ethnicity behind the camera, above the line, uh, and a few other key positions below the line. Yeah, wow. It's really so thorough. I went through the study, and I've been using the study in years in writing and papers, even in college, I remember <laughs> citing the study. Um, and it's so thorough. How do you conduct the study? Well, at the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, we're housed at USC, and there's two ways that uh, our students can um, be involved with this work. One is that we offer a class where we teach them how to evaluate content, take them through all the measures. Uh, and then for another group of students, we pay them as research assistants to evaluate content. And so the whole goal of this longitudinal study is to be able to apply the measures in the same way over time uh, to yield results that we have confidence in if there's been a change. And, and what's really, I think, exciting and something that we do that's very unique to, to I'm not aware of any other scholar uh, working like this in film, is we ensure that three people evaluate each film because mm. we're concerned speaking characters, even those characters that only say a single word, there are at least three people independently evaluating this content so that the certainty of the results increases uh, given that we're not relying just on what one person's evaluation of the story is. Wow, that's so, that's so thorough and a pretty good campus job, actually. <laughs> Indeed. So let's talk about like the the findings of this year. I mean, I was pretty shocked to see that in many sort of places in terms of inclusion from gender to race to disability to uh, the LGBTQ community, there has not been as much progress as I would have sort of thought, uh, given the slate. 
You're right on point, Chris. Um, I think the headline on the press release reads, reads, progress, what progress? And Mm. that's really the tenor of this report is there hasn't been progress, which isn't surprising um, because look at who's running these companies. Look at who's uh, on that green lighting team at the major studios, which are largely responsible for these films. If those groups don't change, I think it's wishful right thinking to imagine that the findings are going to change. And so Hmm. post George Floyd's murder, post stop Asian hate, we were very interested in where are we at? Now, we paused the report in 2020, 2021 Mm -hmm. and picked it back up for 2022 because of the pandemic, which changed the nature of the movies that comprise the top 100 films, which I'm totally. happy to talk about later if you're interested. But, oh, yeah. but but yes, almost across the board, we're seeing no change or a reversal, right? Moving backwards yeah. uh, to pre-pandemic levels. And so I don't think there's real cause for celebration. And, and this, this data... These findings mm-hmm. should really be part of these negotiations that are taking place because okay. because uh, underrepresented folks, folks that are historically marginalized in Hollywood, they're they're erased, they're invisible, and Absolutely. Um, and and we're not hearing enough of that, I believe, in these conversations. Wow, I mean, I think that's so true. It's just it's so. I will say, I was like pretty gobsmacked because last year did, in certain ways, feel like a really big year for representation in everything, everywhere else. All at once, you know, winning, you know, sweeping the Oscars, basically, and Michelle Yeoh's historic first win. And then we had Tar and the Whale. So it feels like the public perception is not as in not in line with the Annenberg study. And we have a lot to sort of learn from (laughs) from this sort of thorough study because it's not all, you know, it's not all inclusive yet. Exactly. So, Chris, I'm glad you brought that up because often our mind can play tricks on us. And if we can think of a few high profile examples, we're going to overestimate how inclusion is doing because it's based on this process cognitively called the availability heuristic. If if things easily come to mind at a particular class of, of events, we're going to overestimate. If we can think of a lot of women directors, if we can think of a lot of underrepresented leads, we're going to say things seem to be moving in the right direction. Sadly, um, our minds deceive us. And that's why data like this is so important. So let me let me just give you some really problematic findings. Since 2007. Yeah, I was about to ask. Yeah, statistics. Let's, yeah, let's hear some of these statistics. No change in the percentage of female speaking characters on screen. These are characters that say one or more words all the way up to the protagonist. It's 29.9 in 2007, and it's less than 5% different in 2022. It's clocking in around 34%. This is highly problematic given the vast amount of money, time, and energy activists are putting in. It's also really interesting that we find that women casting directors, particularly Caucasian women directors, they're not advocating in small roles for girls and women on screen. And so we're really seeing, when it comes to gender, leading characters seem to be moving in the right direction, but the entire ecosystem completely stalled. When we think about underrepresented wow. racial ethnic groups, the black community, the Latino community, indigenous folks, right? People that are multiracial, multi-ethnic, no change. No change, mm. which is unbelievable. Yeah, it's been 15 years. I mean, it's been so many so many years and that's yeah. that's so that's so wild. Um Two years. Yeah. And to say there's no change. Now, we did see an uptick in Asian representation that held for 3 years. Mm. Initially, that was, should be cause for celebration. But when you unpack the data, it's really because the box office changed. These aren't films being made by the studios. These are international films that are coming, that are popular. Um, uh, movies out of Bollywood, movies out of Japan yeah. that are anime. Korea, exactly. for sure. And so we're not seeing the studios make films that feature Asian representation. We're seeing mm. content that U.S. audiences are choosing that are being produced and distributed elsewhere. So, so this well, is a very that, um, problematic uh, sign for who's making decisions about inclusion at these companies. Yeah, and it actually shows that Americans or people want more inclusion. We're seeking out, you know, other markets to to see ourselves on screen and to be represented. And so, 
it really is sort of wild that the studios and the people that are in charge um, don't seem to realize or notice that. I do, I do want to know too, as we've talked about, the entertainment industry has changed so much since 2007 in terms of the model. You said you go to the top 100 box office hits, um, but now we have streamers, right? We've got Netflix, we've got Hulu, we've got, you know, digital content, all of that. How does, has that factored into the study yet at all in terms of like the new way that we sort of consume uh, film? Our, our work is broader than just this report. So we evaluate Netflix every two years. Um, mm. Because they're setting the agenda. Let's be clear. They're the front runner. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's embarrassing. This report, vis-a-vis the report that we just put out with Netflix uh, several months ago. Now, what's interesting about that report is that um, girls and women lead at Netflix. They lead in film and series. And, oh, wow. and underrepresented folks are punching way over proportional representation. So, uh, you know, uh, if you think about that as one indicator, whether it's leading characters or um, all speaking characters, Netflix is, you know, uh, far and away um, reflecting the interests of the audience uh, far more. And if we were to compare side by side films that Scott Stuber is greenlighting versus films coming out of these legacy companies, there there's no comparison. Netflix wow. has, has won the day, the year, multiple years, um, and they're continuing to increase. And so really looking at that leadership um, Bella, Scott, Ted, and the decisions that they're mm-hmm. making. It's a real, I mean, somebody should do a Harvard Business Review case study on that because yeah. they're reflecting the needs and wants. Still room for improvement, right? LGBTQ, people with disabilities, uh, non-binary folks. These are folks, these are places where we need to see across the board far more representation and film and on the streaming platforms. Wow, that is very interesting, that dichotomy and that difference. And I do I do want to go back to the studios just because it's clearly, you know, now that you've been doing the study since 2007 and there's been basically no change, it feels systemic, and right, in terms of, like, how Hollywood works and how Hollywood runs and, and just, yeah, it feels very much in the blood of Hollywood. So I'm wondering how... How do we change this? And I do feel like you, there's a top-down approach that you that you're advocating for in terms of how how do we get more underrepresented people onto our screens? Well, I think that that is a great question because um, we give lots of talks, and the thing that always strikes strikes me as so bizarre is you know when we do the question and answer time, you get people asking questions based on antiquated thinking from, it might be from the 1930s, really great example of this, I had an executive ask, well, you're you're saying that A-listers don't make money. We did the most sophisticated economic analyses and uh, the A-lister wasn't a significant predictor of making money domestically or internationally in a film, which is great news for film financing, right? But the executive mm-hmm. really pushed back and said, but this is the way that it's always been done. Like, that's unbelievable. And wow. my response is, well, clearly, this isn't about money. Because <laughs> the data are really clear about making money. So this is about um, the ways in which people uh, make decisions and what these companies need are the top experts uh, in the field coming in and educating and peeling back the systemic processes that lead to, de- to, to that lead to decisions of exclusion? And mm. I, you know the top scholars that I'm aware of aren't working with these companies, and that's that's important um, because this is going to continue on. I mean. Barbie is amazing. Greta will. I was just about to. <laughs> Greta will work. Margot will work. Ryan will work. America will work. Issa Rae will work. Will they learn from the bottom line? Absolutely not. They're as Randall Park is saying. They're going to go make toy movies, right? Mm. There's not a real appreciation, and one of the reasons we got into music is that women of color were leading the way in music globally, and that really mm. became became the model of how do we counter film saying that, oh, underrepresented leads won't travel in parts of Asia, right, to other parts mm. of Asia. I'm like, music travels everywhere, and music is both audio and visual, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't mean to sound unhinged, but these people are out of their minds <laughs> if they're not thinking <laughs> critically. Yeah. It's my whole job to think critically, to overthrow mythologizing, but to also have a growth mindset and think differently 
in light of new information and to grow and evolve. And I feel like they're kind of stuck developmentally, maybe in the 80s or the 90s in the way that financing and making decisions. I mean, that's it's so interesting, too, because these studios are like hemorrhaging money and yet not and yet not sort of changing with the times and sort of becoming more representative a la a Netflix or, you know, a big streamer. Um, so it does seem like they're sort of stuck, stuck in the past in a really big way. Yeah. And Chris, one indicator of this from our findings uh, in 2022, there was only one gender non-binary character. Out of more than 4,200. And, you know, I work on a college campus and it would it would really help these executives to come spend time on a college campus. They can pick any campus to really Mm -hmm. understand the needs, the values, the interests of Mm -hmm. um, young people. Uh, if that is who they're making content for, it might be really important for them to to see and feel and experience that the world is very different than the world we see on screen. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's so true. And I do think in terms of that representation, right? Um, and that's such a crazy statistic, one non-binary person. That's ridiculous. Um that should be, representation should be the lowest bar, right? Because we see this, you know, with Disney all the time where they say we're going to have a big gay kiss, you know, in our movie and then it doesn't happen or it's edited out in certain places and the actual content doesn't live up to the promise of representation. So mm-hmm. if we're still struggling with this bar, how how are we going to get to actually meaningful representation? Because I feel like there's a difference just between, you know, somebody with a couple lines over here yeah. and full casts and series or films and franchises and that are dedicated to um, being inclusive. Right. So, so I think that um, any sort of way forward needs to be grounded in evidence and with a path that actually yields change. So like with the, the diversity requirements of the Academy, when they first came out, we ran the films based on certain criteria and it really wouldn't create any difference. No, mm, really? No. So, like virtually none. No, no. I mean, I think it was ninety to ninety-five percent of the films in the top one hundred films passed the requirement. So I'm like, okay, so that doesn't make much sense. But yeah. So, so that's my point: is there has to be a peeling back. So one of the reasons why we look at casting directors and their relationship to on-screen portrayals is because they have power. They have power in who, mm-hmm. who auditions and ultimately working with the director and who gets cast, particularly in small roles. So mm. accountability for particularly Caucasian women who are not casting, women of color are advocating for, I mean, look at the data, right? They're not the problem. So, yeah. so okay, so if that is what we see with casting directors, a lot of these executives, you know, particularly when you're talking about inclusion, like, oh, it's up to the director, right? We don't want to impose anything on the director as if it's art. Well, we know these films aren't art because the the average score um, on Metacritic ac- across the top 100 films is a failing grade on wow. on on Metacritic, right? And so they're treating this content as if it's precious in some sort of way that they don't want to step on the creative decision-making of the directors. Well, unless unless there is a different approach to hiring, more time, mm-hmm. the consideration of a talent pool that reflects the world that we live in, right? It's not based on word of mouth or who you know um, or who you're related to. It's really mm. based on the skills and abilities of the the folks that are competing for these jobs, it would take a massive overhaul between the agencies and the studios of how different people are considered, are interviewed, and awarded a employment opportunity. That requires a lot of work. And, you know, yeah. a lot of folks, uh, when it comes to inclusion, don't want to stop and do the work. They want to have a diversity team that has employee resource groups. And they want to have a team that, you know, works with writers or directors and, and mentors them and takes them around the lot in a golf cart and, <laughs> you know, makes them feel good about who's coming in to, to do a Q&A rather than saying, here are the jobs that you're gonna, going to be able to to compete for. Um, mm. and, and we're going to guarantee employment because you're part of a program. Like the whole system has to be reimagined because when, and you'll love this statistic, when <laughs> we look across directors and Metacritic scores on average, there's only one group that's punch, Caucasian women, white men, 
underrepresented men, on average, all produce films um, at the lowest level. Mm -hmm. But women of color, their films have the highest Metacritic score on average of any director. <laughs> Where are they? Talent. Why aren't they working? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's not because of their talent, right? Yeah. And so it's helping folks to folks to reimagine completely how they finance, how they crew, giving them time to do that. And, and none of these groups are willing uh, at this point to overhaul those processes. Cause if they were, wow. this that's such a, that's such a great statistic. And it does, it's really, it's not a lack of talent. Obviously it's a lack of opportunity and hundred percent. And that's, you know, a running theme um, with, so with the strikes that are happening right now, um, are you optimistic that they, you know, once we're on the other side, they'll create positive change or are you, or is it sort of a worry that people will just be so happy to get back to work that they're just going to make whatever anybody tells them to and ignore, you know, doing the real work that you just described? Well, you know, we, I think everybody who isn't directly involved um, and is watching and reading we want people back to work. We want people to be able to pay their rent and their house payment and to to take care of their families, right? Everybody wants this, um, I would assume. And so I think, you know, we'll see all the press continue until people get back to work, hopefully soon. But I'll tell you, I, I have a very large concern about the historically marginalized really need to be front and center in all of these discussions. How much are they mm. getting paid? What kind of residuals are they getting? What kind of healthcare, you know? And, and the reason why I bring that up is because if you're eviscerated on screen, if you are rendered invisible, you don't have the option for residuals. You don't have the option for healthcare. You don't have the option, right, to, to make a living wage. And so, DEI work needs to be at the center because I fear we're losing so much talent because people can't go on in this industry by just working sporadically. Um, mm -hmm. And if people are being rejected or not given employment opportunities based on their identity, which is what clearly our data show, I mean, there's yeah. no arguing at this point with 16 years, that's discrimination. Mm -hmm. And that's something that that needs to be dealt with immediately because think about all the talent that we're losing. Mm. It's just wasted, hor horrific. Yeah, all the wasted talent. I mean, that's sobering and and very true. And we just have to, you know, they have to create space. I do, I do want to end on like sort of like you know, if we can find like sort of the silver lining or a glimmer of hope in in the study. Is there anything that really excited you about the future? Looking forward, something that maybe did change and you can say no if there's if there's nothing but a couple um, of things one is that we saw the highest number of women composers working in 2022 and i remember wow. when we released our first report on music and our first report on composers and i really have to give a shout out to janine jones at universal <laughs> pictures she created a program and they have really been working to think critically about how to get more women composers attached to, to feature films. And so, so when you see a, a number like that pop out, when it's really a flat line for years and years and years, and then there's growth, that's amazing. I, I look forward to doing this study next year, only because mm -hmm. every time Greta works, it's a home run. Every time, <laughs> yeah. right? And so that if you were to look at the percentage of girls and women um, and underrepresented groups in Barbie and do that analysis, I, I'm very eager to see, again, it's a case study on what is possible. And you have an auteur that is totally. calling the shots in the most phenomenal way, right? So I look forward to 2023. Um, but, wow, yeah. but no, there's not too many findings that I thought, oh, yes, I'm really excited. We, we see some new names of directors. Mm -hmm particularly uh, women and women of color, that's always exciting. But will they have career sustainability, not because of talent, but opportunity? That still makes me nervous. So maybe we do this yeah. next year. And um, and maybe I'll have a little bit more uh, optimism um, in light of maybe <laughs> what 2023 brings. 
Absolutely. I mean, with Barbie, big up, but obviously Oppenheimer sort of the exact opposite. So they might cancel each other out. I'm a little worried. There you go. There you there go. You go. There you go. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So now we're going to kick off the third installment of our August book club with The Zone of Interest by Martin Amos. It was published in 2014. And in an interesting twist on the format we have on this, two of us have already seen the movie that was adapted from it. Uh, Jonathan Glazer debuted the movie The Zone of Interest at Cannes. Richard and Rebecca, you guys both saw it. And I think we'll get into pretty quickly how the movie and the book are very different from each other uh, to the extent to me, it seems like I would like to know why it was adapted in the first place. Um, but I think maybe none of us really knew what we were in for when we picked up the zone of interest. Um, what it does have in common with the movie is that it is set at Auschwitz or kind of in the surroundings around Auschwitz, a.k.a. the zone of interest, and is about Nazis and their families, uh, but also about more than that. It's kind of this broad, expansive look at a concentration camp that is also funny at times in ways that are uncomfortable. And for the first hundred pages of the book, maybe as I was reading it, I was like, I don't know if I can move forward with this. But I powered through and I'm really glad that I did. Um, Hillary, I want to jump to you first because you had read The Zone of Interest. I don't know if it was because the movie was coming out or just you were catching up on it. But well before we announced this book club, you read the book. What made you pick it up? I picked it up because I heard about the movie, honestly. Okay. Um, I had actually not... It's it's funny. Um, there's a phase I think that a lot of people go through or maybe just a lot of uh, Jewish bookworms go through where they just read like a hundred Holocaust books. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's like, you know, you go from like The Devil's Arithmetic to uh, Anne Frank to I Have Lived a Thousand Years number of the stars like i spent i don't know all of i want to say 1998 just reading holocaust books um <laughs> very young like uncomfortably young well those are all four children and then you know you yeah. then you then you grow up and uh you see night and fog and <laughs> there's a whole a whole progression um but yeah so because maybe i read so many as uh as like an elementary middle schooler um i then like really lost my <laughs> lost my taste so to speak for any kind of holocaust fiction um and have kind of like intentionally avoided it as an adult um but then when i heard about the film version um of the zone of interest uh this year i thought that that just sounded like a really interesting take on a story that I've read so many times. Um, And so, yes, I haven't seen the movie yet, um, but I did read the book uh, inspired by knowledge that the movie exists. And yeah, it is it is certainly a version of a Holocaust story I haven't read before, which I thought was not possible. The the take being the focus on the Nazi officers and their families more so than what's actually happening in the camp. Yeah, rather than on the prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the and Richard and Rebecca, I'll jump to you guys soon because you've actually seen the movie. But everything we kind of read about it was that, you know, it's taking place around Auschwitz, but you basically almost never see it. Um, even though, Richard, in your review, I was reading, you talk about how it opens with like a lot of black screen and Mika Levy's score that sounds like it's descending into hell. Yeah. Um, which sounded like a really appropriate vibe for this book as well, even though it's funny and, um, you know, interested in things other than the horrors. Um, it is kind of a descent into hell. Yeah, I think the difference, I think I see where Glazer got the inspiration for the film in the tone in some ways. And and there are certain details and moments that are repeated in both. But I think the, the movie is more about this guy, Rudolf Haas, who is fictionalized with a different name in the book. Um, running, He's the inspiration for the Paul Dahl character, Yeah, right? Paul Dahl, exactly. Um, it's more about this man and and his family, yes, and how they can kind of live proximal to such horror. I think the book, in a really fascinating way, by the end, is about the lunacy of the whole war. Uh, Well, really, of the Nazi 
project and 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 that moment in time and in that insanity there is some comedy which i think is fascinating um the the doll character is so ludicrous and pompous and ridiculous thus speaking to the character of many high-ranking nazi officers these people were crazy and pompous and awful and mean and venal and any other negative adjective you could throw at them um, but I think by the end, I really, you know, there is comedy in it, but you really feel this incredible weight of like, this is an absurdity beyond comprehension that this happened. I mean, it is so, you know, in his postscript, Martin Amos writes a lot about that, like how you can never fully understand Hitler or who's never named in the book um, or what anyone associated with him did because it kind of defies any sort of mortal understanding, really. And I think that's really powerfully communicated in the book, whereas the movie feels a bit more, while no less powerful, um, a bit more localized. Rebecca, how did the um, reading, I assume you read this book after you had seen the movie at Cannes, right? Yeah, I read this book uh, in the last couple weeks. And I usually hate reading a book after seeing the film because I can't get like, you know, the actors out of my mind while I'm reading the book. Um, But for this one, it didn't actually matter because the book is so different than the film. Um, But I I agree, Richard. I think the main parallel is sort of the discomfort they both create by focusing in on the mundane lives of the Nazis. I I really enjoyed the book. I I think I've spoken about how when I went into the movie, I had like read a synopsis of the book and I was like, oh, it's about like a love triangle. This will be weird. And then yeah. <laughs> the movie is not about that at all. And so... And um, the book isn't really like... Describing as a love triangle feels very simple because I had heard that too. Yeah. Find that description and make them make a correction because the book <laughs> is not about that at all either. I mean, there is like this, you know, character who's very interested in this married woman and that like takes you through a lot of the book but um i i re- i i had a hard time starting the book but i really really thought it was pretty fantastic once i got into it and um i think the way he sort of balances the story between those three main narrators is so well done and uh, it kind of made me wish there were a little bit more of that in the film because it is such a really loose adaptation um but yeah, I mean, I'm glad I read it. I, I, I don't think I would have uh, if we weren't doing it for this because I wasn't sure how closely related it was to the film. But yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty great. Yeah, the book made me think a lot about the thing we talk about more in movies, like depiction does not equal endorsement and what it takes to tackle these characters who are reprehensible, but also interesting and sometimes funny and sometimes intentionally funny and often ridiculous. Um, This book pulls that off in such an interesting way, not just with the Paul Dahl character who is really pompous and ridiculous from the beginning. Like, there's this part where he's narrating the book where he just says, Paul Dahl is completely normal. I'm a completely normal man. (laughs) Really funny. Um, But then you get... um, Golo Thompson is his nickname. Um, and he's kind of the like, he's a businessman more than a like a rank and file Nazi. And he's there trying to run a rubber factory, I think, adjacent to Auschwitz. And honestly, I meant to kind of look up the the reality of this and how those things are related to each other. But he kind of has the like turn of conscience over the course of the story. But that's not what makes him interesting. And it's not what made me like more interested in the book. And I haven't really figured out why it works that way. But it's so interesting to have someone who's not like, I am a Nazi who's going to be redeemed, but do something a lot more complicated than that. And a lot more, I think, rooted in how real people act. Well, yeah, because he's not even really. I mean, he he's he's an opportunist, right? And that's Mm -hmm. kind of his entire point. And then, you know, the war ends and he's like, well, I guess, uh, Guess I'm, you know, all working for, for the Americans now. Yeah, I'm working for the Americans now. I'm, I'm gonna like find a way to stay in a comfortable position with like my new people, and I, I think that that is, yeah, that's a side of. It's so easy, especially in movies, when you're depicting World War II, to just to have the villains be these cartoonish, insane Nazis, whereas the reality is a lot more interesting and complicated in that like there are a lot of rabid actual like true believers but then there's a lot of there were a lot of people like Golo Thompson who are like well I guess this is what we're doing now if I want to like get along um and yeah it's just like digging into that without 
I don't I guess I don't want to say without judgment because it's very it's it's very clear that Martin Amos thought that Nazis were bad. <laughs> like I'm I'm glad he had that at the end where he was just like I think Nazis are bad just make sure we're all clear. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um but yeah to to really kind of talk about the hierarchy like within the Nazis and the differences of opinions of the people who are you know fighting on the German side to even like hear them talking among themselves about how like well the war's not going so great for us is it like yeah that's that's all a perspective that is certainly not as common in you know American media and yeah I, I thought that was really interesting I think something that people are still trying to parse from this period of history is how many people were true believers and how many people were just kind of caught up in it. And I think that by the end of the book, the answer, I mean, if it's even an answer that Amos provides is, does it really matter? They did it, yeah. you know, right. yeah. and they were present and made choices. And the Thompson character and, and Hannah, who is the wife of the commandant um, doll, uh, they restore some clarity as the book, you know, reaches its end. Uh, and, and start to realize what a horrible thing that they have been, you know, either complicit in or, or, or active in. But Amos doesn't let them off the hook for it, you know. And I think that that's kind of where I think Glazer picked up uh, in the movie, because, you know, this book was written, it was published in 2014, but I think it was a long time coming, you know. And so it was a very different global political climate, even just nine years ago, when it, the book came out. Um, and I think Glazer is saying, let's look at the d- the difference between true believer and just person who went along with orders, you know, because I think his movie is meant to kind of tell us something about right now. Um, mm. Whereas I don't think that's quite as much on Amos's mind. Um, it still feels horribly relevant, especially in that postscript I mentioned, where he describes in a paragraph that I t- tweeted out last night, uh, what the temper of like the German public was, or at least the Nazi supporting German public was. And it sounds horribly familiar to Mm. our times, but yeah, I I don't know. I think that, I think that Glazer read this book and said, there is something here that I can mine and hone for a little more timeliness. Whereas Amos is more, um, there is an ending in some senses to his story. Yeah, it feels it feels, you know, it's meticulously researched. It's it feels a, like a work of historical fiction more than something that is trying to comment on the like climate in which it was written. Can we talk about the Smool character? Shmuel, I, I'm not up on my Polish, but there's a Z in his name. Um, he's kind of he's the third point of view character and he is in the Sonderkommando, which is basically um, Jews who were in the concentration camp and were charged with just the absolute worst unimaginable jobs at Auschwitz uh, dealing with dead bodies. Um, I was a really big fan of the movie Son of Saul, which is about a, a character in a similar situation. Um, it came out, I think, in 2014, actually, at the same time as the book. It's interesting. Um and I found the sections of the book so unbearable that I wonder if I have just gotten older, if I've had children. It's, they're valuable to the book, but it's like the most, I think, undeniably harrowing part of the book that I would not want to see reenacted on film again. You know, Son of Saul is enough. Um, but I wonder how you guys dealt with those chapters as well. I definitely like dreaded them when I saw it was going to be <laughs> his turn to, to narrate because you just knew it was going to be so heartbreaking and, and difficult to read. And, and the way he writes... Um, those chapters is very different. You know, there's a lot of space yeah. between the paragraphs and you just feel like this man is like almost, it takes so much effort for him to even describe the horrors he's seeing that it, the way it's written is so different from the rest of the book. Um, but I feel like it's such a necessary narrator to have because I if it was just the other two, I just don't think the book would have worked as well as it I did. don't know, Rebecca. I disagree. I kind really? of felt like yeah, I don't know. That that was like you two, I I dreaded those chapters, but I don't know if I found them as necessary just because again, it does kind of anybody who has read about the Holocaust or has learned about the Holocaust like knows that there are Jews that were you know, conscripted into these terrible positions. And I it's it's not it's not that I felt like they were like tragedy porn or anything. I don't think that they were really overblown or melodramatic, but I just feel like that side of Auschwitz like is something that's been depicted and described and 
really, really examined for decades. And so, yeah, I, I can see why he included those chapters as, you know, a counterbalance, because otherwise, I don't know, maybe maybe the project would seem too glib or something. Um, but I don't know that I found them as necessary to the whole. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in the movie, because like lifting them out, I think, must make the project feel really different. I think that he, Amos treads, because he's talking, among other things, about complicity and about participation. And here is someone in this character who is forced into that in a way, but also, I guess, could choose to die. Um, mm. Yeah, and those are the two, the two options, know? yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that maybe it gets, he gets on a little shaky ground with that, where it's like, you know, calling a Jewish person a capo to this day is like a horrible insult, right? Like it, it because it, it it implies a sort of like betrayal of of your people, and I don't know if this book always gets to a point where Amos isn't not. I mean, he's not blaming this character, but it, it, it's it's complicated and maybe by design. But yeah, I felt a little bit uneasy at times with that section because the other two parts are so vividly rendered and I think so morally clear um, that this third part of the book. It brings up a lot more questions that I don't know that the book fully addresses by the end. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think that I, I wonder if he just felt like he needed the Jewish perspective in there somehow. And like it, it, fe- it sort of felt obligatory more than something that he thought the book demanded, if that makes sense. But also, do you think if you're doing something about like systems of power and the way that people are conscripted and organized into groups to accomplish tasks, that it's an oversight not to include that? Because that, you know, people like that were such a part of the German war machine against their will. Yeah, yeah I I guess. But I, I think I agree with Richard, though, that I don't know if like the small perspective is something that Amos is even really as interested in. Like, I, mm. I think that his author's note at the end kind of says everything that those small chapters said, but in a clearer and more concise way. One thing I thought was fascinating about the book was um, that the movie doesn't really get into. And also, I just feel like a lot of the Holocaust fiction that I've watched or read also hasn't really covered is that like, among their many horrible ideas and practices, the Nazis had awful ideas about women. And mm. even women in their own ranks, you know, and I think this book in the way that the women characters, um, none of whom really, sp- none of whom speak like they, there are no na- uh, chapters um, from women's perspectives. There are chapters named after women at the end. Right. <laughs> there are. Right. It's confusing. But like that, that there was such a, a, a strict idea of what women should be, how they should dress, how they should act, while these men are also constantly looking for other women to sleep with. Uh, who are thus then violating what it is to be a true Nazi. And some of the women are, you know, uh, are not German or, you know, they they are marginalized in some way or even in the camps themselves. And I thought that was like a a, a valuable perspective to bring in that, you know, I, I, I had sort of dimly known about among many other things, that the Nazis were rampant misogynists. Um, But to see that almost literalized in this book, I I thought was new for me and invaluable. Yeah, when you meet the aunt character who he goes to visit in Berlin and she's trying to have 10 children to win some kind of cross from the government, um, and it repeats the line, of course the dead ones count, um, you know, because one of her children died after being born. Um, It really, I think, hammers that home really effectively um, of what it, you know, meant to be even the high-ranking Nazi wife. Yeah, I'm not sure Martin Amis is the one to have written that book, but I definitely want to read the book, like the version of The Zone of Interest that is just about the women. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's Jonathan Glazer's next movie. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> 
On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So would you guys tell people to pick this up before they see it? It doesn't sound like it's essential viewing, reading before the movie at all, but it does seem like it uh, sheds some interesting light on it. I think I would sort of just describe them as very separate experiences. Mm. I, I, I would recommend people read the book and see the movie, but I don't think you need to sort of do them as a, a companion piece experience. Um, but I'm I'm glad I read it, but I actually kind of would recommend doing it the way I did and see the movie first and then read the book because um, they are just so different. Yeah. The movie is a smaller version of it in a way. I mean, it's about big things. It is. Yeah. But like the movie is a piece of the book, a, a sort of approximation of the book's tone. And then the book kind of is much more blown out. Um, I think that the book, I really got a lot out of it. I thought it was brilliantly written and structured and, and all that. Reading it, you know, maybe sort of navel-gazing solipsistically as an American as we head into 2024 and another election while horrible things are, you know, horrible people are saying horrible things and whatever. Like, it's pretty bracing in, in that context, you know? I don't know that, I mean, obviously in action, they're different, but in sort of demeanor and, and even maybe sometimes ideology, is there that much difference between Paul Dahl and, you know, the governor of Florida or, you know, mm. some a senator from Missouri? Like, I, I don't know, you know, and I think that even even maybe Trump, like, and, and that relevance, I think, especially in the postscript, it's a lot to sit with, you know, and so if people don't want to be if they're if they already have that in their head pretty thoroughly, um, maybe they don't want to add to it by reading this. Yeah, there's a line early in the book, and I don't remember who says it, but it seems like we all knew the Jews need to be taken down a notch, but this is ridiculous. And it kind of it highlights that slippery slope idea of like how kind of like low level racism can morph into something really horrifying like this with just like a couple of really committed people in power. That that was one of the more chilling parts of the book, I thought. Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe the difference is that the governor of Florida has never been to the opera. <laughs> <laughs> right. They don't have an opera house in Orlando. Um, Hillary, I wanted to ask you as, you know, not necessarily the Holocaust book expert, but this book did make me kind of interested in more about like the German government structure in this time. Is there anything you've read that would be, you know, not like a deep dive into the horrors of Auschwitz, but kind of more about how all this stuff got came to be and was built? Oh, I mean, the class I took in college <laughs> definitely uh, gave me some insight into that. Um, man, nothing, nothing immediately coming to mind. I mean, but yeah, the, I mean, that's the that's the crazy thing. Like Martin Amos gets into this in his afterward. He names some of the books that he read as research. Read um, and I think that that's probably a good starting point. But yeah, you can you can really fall down a rabbit hole like there's the camps themselves, obviously, horrible and horribly fascinating in a lot of ways. But yeah, just the Nazis were so weird. And <laughs> the just uh, the the intricacies of their hierarchy and of the government. And yeah, like there's just uh, there's kind of it's very easy. I don't know, as as any boomer father will tell you, it's very easy to spend all of your free time diving into this stuff. Yeah, I wish I, I don't have a specific answer, but I feel like Martin Amos does. I'm, I'm yeah. glad you brought up the weirdness, Hillary, because I think that's a huge part of the book um, mm -hmm. is that the way he shifts in language. He's using German. He's using Yiddish. He's using some Polish, um, you know, in the middle of English language sentences. And I think a lot of the German, all the terms, these many, many letters long terms for like, he was the leader of this secret police group. And, and the insanity of these fucking murderous assholes cosplaying organization and hierarchy and mm -hmm. making mean little army men is so interesting. And then I was reading about Martin Borman, who is the uncle of one of the characters in this book. I mean, the, he's a f fictional character, but Martin Borman was very much real. And it's my understanding that Borman was, in some ways, the chief architect of all that hierarchy. 
um, because it, it in in organizing it, it brought him closer to Hitler and it made him more powerful. And I think that that's some of where the comic element of the book comes in, where you're just like, what are you guys talking about? Who is mm-hmm. he? Like, this is all absurd. And maybe that's me being biased that sometimes German words sound funny to me. But like, <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's a crucial part of the book is that like, on top of everything else, these guys were buffoons who were, uh, you know, trying to make themselves sound important by like lading, lading themselves with titles and whatever. And it, it was just, it's, it, yeah, that's the darkly comic uh, aspect of this. Yeah. And, and the dark, the dark humor and just like exquisite cruelty of all of the, of all the euphemisms yeah. that they use around mm-hmm. the camp, even, you know, zone of interest itself um the they call the peep the body's pieces yeah the spring meadow which is the giant crematory area yeah like just there's there's a lot of gallows humor which it feels sort of weird and wrong to say but it's and it's all it's not stuff that amos invented yeah yeah and it doesn't make you feel bad for them but it kind of makes you realize the amount of denial and you know self-medication with alcohol and everything else it took even these like committed psychopath Nazis to get through this stuff um, and how uh, unnatural human behavior it was, maybe. I'm surprised they didn't start a space force. (laughs) (laughs) Always bringing it back to the present, Richard. If they'd made it into the 60s. (laughs) For sure. Um, Okay, so the Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest will be making the fall festival circuit and will be out in theaters later this year. Um, I think we all expect it to have some kind of role in awards conversations, so we'll be talking about it plenty. And go check out the book from Art Namus either before or after and tell us what you think. That does it for this week's show. Next week will be the finale of our August Book Club. We'll be reading Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind, which is soon to be a movie on Netflix starring Julia Roberts. Read it with us. And as we wrap up our series, find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I am on Twitter at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And Hillary. Hillabuster. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the thing David Canfield says all the time goes to Katie Rich. I'm a completely normal man. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.